Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm now joined by Alex Stewart. Hey Joe, how are you doing? I'm well, how are you? Yeah, fine. You're uh, For people listening, Alex is currently wearing an orange football shirt with some dungarees over the top of it. Yes. You look like a semi-pro player who's uh, painting my windows, you know? It's a AGF Aarhus shirt. Where do they play? In, in the Netherlands? Uh, Denmark. In Denmark. Yeah. There we go. It's Hummel's hometown. Oh, yeah, very exciting. And what are you wearing, Seb? I am wearing a hoodie from Football Town. Okay. I'm wearing, I'm going to go through their range. <laughs> I didn't, didn't realise it. I thought I was making a joke because you look no, like no, no, you haven't you dressed are, up at you all. No, no, you are. I, you know, no, couldn't recommend them highly enough. Not paid to endorse it or anything. Just, um, they don't pay like overweight, overweight sort of balding men. Overweight balding men. How many people have you wed? No, I, I'm, I'm appropriately wed, but I am overweight and balding and they don't pay people like me to model stuff. So. Sure. They do, oh, never mind. Like if it was like a, some kind of sort of ooh, average man type of situation, then yes, but... Sometimes I forget we're live and I can't just say whatever comes to my mind. But listen, there's lots to get through today. It was a big football day and uh, I'm very pleased to be here because everyone got what they deserved. Mm. No, not that, of course, but we've seen that France, even France can draw a game or drop points, which is lovely and makes me feel better about being an England fan. Germany are back, of course, and we'll be talking about them. Uh, and also Spain uh, still can't really do it properly and we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But do you know where else, Alex, you'll be able to read about those things in much more detail and probably a bit better than we're going to talk about it here? I'm going to stick my neck out and suggest it's The Athletic. It is The Athletic. If you visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, you'll find that you can try all of the wonders of The Athletic for free for 30 days. That's theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. And I would highly encourage that you go and do that. I find it an invaluable source of wonderful material, Seb. Sure do. And especially during the Euros, the content has been absolutely... Absolutely fantastic. Top notch. Really top notch. I've loved it. Um, Ralph Honigstein, uh, James Horncastle, Simon Hughes has written some great stuff on Scott Holland. McTominay. Scott McTominay is there his, as well. His, did you read his piece? Yeah, How did. to be a midfielder. Yeah, yeah. It was really interesting. It was good. Really interesting, yeah. I liked Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Really worth the money at the moment. Well, anyway, it's there is no money because it's free for 30 days. That's a good point. Visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. Okay, well, we'll crack on then. Uh, no more's worth a loss to nothing. And uh, I will leave you in the warm hands and the cool embrace of Seb Stafferblor, Alex Stewart, and the Euros, the, the just Euros. Where else to begin uh, than with the current world champions, France, dropping points? Uh, to Hungary, 1-1. Of course, a, a lovely uh, Hungarian goal from Fiola just before half-time. Uh, and a Griezmann equaliser, 66 minutes in. Uh, Alex, tell me again, as you've told me before, about this French defensive issue, because I love to hear about any problem that the French team has, just because they're really good, and I like it when the good ones don't do as well as they should. So they are really good, yes, but they have a problem. And the problem is that when the fullbacks push up, if the fullbacks are then counted against, uh, and this is particularly an issue for Pavard, although Hernandez suffers from it too, their body positioning gets a bit twisted up and they will kind of change the angle that they're trying to, they're trying to push the opposition player in field. But in order to do that, they're having to rotate their body around weirdly. Why do they want to push? <coughs> I understand when players want to push outfield, but why do they want to push them infield? Because there'll be someone like Kante coming across to, ah, to make a tackle. Or more bodies. Up. Yeah, more bodies, basically. But because of the time it takes them to do this, what often happens is that a centre-back will come across to join that. Now, Varane is particularly guilty of this. And it's something that we actually highlighted way, way back when we did a Man City, Real Madrid Champions League preview video. Yeah. Varane has this tendency to go wandering into the wide areas to cover. And that leaves a gap down the middle because Kimpembe doesn't shift over. Yes, if you've got Kante and you've got Rabiot, you're likely to have that gap filled. But it does mean that if that space is open and you can play a quick one-two through that, changing the angle of the run, 
then you can basically go straight through the middle of them. And is this how the goal was scored today? This is how the goal was scored today. It's how mm. Bulgaria carved out two really good chances against them in their uh, pre-Euros friendly. Bulgaria are not a great side. And this is why when I saw it, I was thinking this this is a bit of an alarm bell here because if Bulgaria, all respect to Bulgaria, if they're able to do this, then good teams in the Euros. And I have talked before I bang on a little bit about this, that you have this issue, particularly on the right-hand side of teams' defences, where there's uh, this sort of ability that teams have to get through by playing quick one-twos in the channels and either cutting across or behind the centre-back. Um, but France looked very vulnerable to it, and that's how Hungary scored today. Mm, very interesting. Seb, you know how sometimes I uh, uh, <laughs> chastise you for playing around with the plan in the background when we're doing a podcast? I know it's about to... Listeners, yeah. we, we share a Google document uh, where we have our podcast plan and we can refer to it when we're recording. And something wonderful has just happened. I've noticed Seb there in the background. He's questioned my spelling of Griezmann. He's changed it, the, uh, the E and the I. Mm -hmm. And then he's tried to change it back, realising I was right and hoping I wouldn't notice. And I did notice... Thank you very much for it that. It was, it just looked wrong. Real validation. It just looked wrong. Sure. It was, it was, I don't know what to say. I was caught, I was kind of hoping you were engaging in your conversation with Alex properly. You were not, and I tried to undo my mistake. No, he, he asks me a thing and then he just does a little reference. I was looking at you almost that entire time, yeah, apart you, from you when I saw <laughs> Seb's name popping up on my Google Doc. Speaking of things that just look wrong, Seb, Yeah. Uh, Le Route One, hmm? Yeah, a lot of sneering at Route 1. There's a lot of, uh, it feels as if uh, at the beginning of the last decade, uh, or just before that, when um, Guardiola's Barcelona came to the fore and kind of changed the game and for many people became the best side to ever play the game, it felt like at that moment it created a, in inverted commas, correct way of playing, um, which means that unless your your game is, is based around some fairly narrow principles of ball circulation, positional play, um, and kind of Dutch style football. If you're not doing that, you're not doing it right, and mm. you kind of you can kind of lose aesthetic points. Um, and I don't really agree because I've always thought the correct way to play the game is the way that suits the players you have available to you. In the, and that might be. And also, let's be honest. Most teams need, unless you have uh, a collection of players who are, you know, four or five of the world's best in their positions, you're going to need variation in your game. You're going to need the, the ability to control the ball. You're going to need the um, uh, the ability to create phases, attacking phases. And you're also, as and when necessary, you're going to need to transition quickly. And this is a trend which has been in the game for a really long time. And, you know, if you look at um, the rise of Jurgen Klopp's Dortmund and later his Liverpool team, they were not a have-the-ball side. They were a move-the-ball-in-the-right-way-as-quickly-as-possible kind of team. I know Liverpool, modern-day Liverpool aren't quite like that, and they um, adjusted themselves. But it's like a, it's like a snobbery. It's like it's kind of the high priest of the game has dictated that this is how it should be. And it was beautiful, but it was beautiful for a few reasons and because of some fairly significant advantages. And it doesn't mean that um, if you're not suited to playing in a certain way, you should try and kind of contort your players' attributes in a certain way. I don't really... Also, don't there was something bad about France's goal. Well, I, uh, I mean, I find that a fairly contemptible attitude because <laughs> the fact is that Yes. My attitude. Or no, no, no. The <laughs> idea that somehow France's goal was bad because... Or there's one right way of but, playing. Or that there's one right way of playing. But the, uh, this is the thing, because today, it clearly, um, it was clearly... Hungary set up to repel a particular style of football, and they were unsettled by the variation. That is a success. Yeah, Sorry, exactly. I completely cut across you, Alex. You did a little bit. Sorry about that. It's okay, I'll survive. Um, the, the point is that all different types of football done well require skill and vision to execute. Yep. And Larissa's ball and then the ability for those players to move into the correct place, control the ball, feed it through, that is a type of skill in the same way that stringing 45 passes together, moving it around, is also a skill. The ability that players have to react to the circumstances in front of them and then execute responses to those circumstances is what makes good football. And that might be retaining possession and working it through patiently. It might be smacking it long. It might be transitioning like a Bielsa side or a Klopp side. 
it might be doing all three of those things in one game. It's whatever it requires to win that game at that point in time. As an interesting comparison, I know we're just going to briefly jump ahead a little bit here, but a big failing of Spain tonight was the inability to do that. Because have you? Did, if you had anything other than that possession game, which actually in a certain, you know, in a certain light and against a certain opposition can look a little bit fearful, you know, because there's nothing particularly brave about shuffling the ball from side to side. And mm. I, I know, um, you know, you, he's not your favorite co-commentator, Alex, but Danny Murphy on, on the BBC was good because he kept saying, safe, safe, move it sideways, move it sideways. And it's right because that's not actually doing anything with the ball. Also, I really like that idea because I think one of the um, one of the things uh, that is leveled against Route 1 fo- football or more direct football in relation to its supposed negativity is that it is an inherently defensive way of playing. That's exactly how I see, uh, you know, some of the more kind of uh, blunt forms of of tiki-taka. Like the whole point of possession football, surely, Alex, is if you have the ball, the opposition can't score. Isn't that inherently defensive? Yes. Uh, I mean, it's... Yeah, that's a really good point because when... when Certainly when Tiki Taka is done badly, that is still a kind of safety blanket of that system. If you can retain possession for 70-80% of the game, you're by default restricting the kind of chances that that the other team have. And it it always seemed like a slight, um, I don't know, incongruence possibly that this style of football that was predicated on quick rotations, passes, third man runs, which could produce, let's be honest, when Barcelona were at their best, some of the football they played was completely scintillating. But it did seem very much that that, that kind of patient defensive side of it was written out of the narrative. Mm. Um, when Tiki Taka got bad, absolutely, then, then people pile on and go, well, it's defensive, it's boring, it's pedestrian. But it was very much a part of it being good as well. Um, yeah. Harnessed, yes, also with that counter-pressing system, so you have a lot of players around the ball. If you do lose it, you immediately swarm to try and win it back. And that's quite sensible. And that comes from that style of, of play. But yes, it's it's like anything. You, you can have 20% possession uh, and play very few passes. But if those passes are hitting exactly the right areas because you've got a mismatch. We, we've, we've done videos before about superiorities. Mm. And one of the superiorities, perhaps the one that is least often talked about from a tactical perspective, is the superiority of an individual battle. So if you have a really tall, quick, think of Mario Mandzukic playing on the left-hand side. Mm. He could boss fullbacks all day long because he was so good in the air and he was so physically aggressive. That's a superiority that you uh, get the most out of by hitting long passes across to him. Mm. It's reductive, right? It's route one football, but it's generating a superiority. If you catch it in the language that people use to describe Tiki Taka, yeah. all of a sudden it sounds more impressive. Yeah. You know what you know what I always think about with that Barcelona team? Talking about like Tiki Taka, like I associate it with bravery because to, to to develop superiorities in certain parts of the pitch, you have to be brave. Think about how how high those fullbacks played to create the kind of the numbers at the edge of the box or in wide positions to cut through a defense. So it wasn't a question of and, and Guardiola famously has always resented this, the idea of possession for possession's sake. Never that. It was never that. It was vertical and quick mm-hmm. and brave. And underneath it all, it, it had a counter-press. It was extremely hard-working. Yeah. And it's it's almost as if um, it's like, uh, you know, it's like the, the, the bad guitarist bred by Jimi Hendrix. It's people who didn't quite pay enough attention and just really love feedback. Let me sow my narrative, Seb. How <laughs> dare you bust my myth? I'm sowing it here and now. The last 10 years never happened. Anyway, I'm, I'm fearful that we've already begun to talk about Spain. We will come back. <laughs> to discuss Spain's lack of firing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, up the old top end of the pitch. But let's return to discuss the the same thing with France. Uh, and we had a little chat about team chemistry earlier. Um, yes, we did. As it relates to uh, to France's front three of uh, Benzema, Mbappe and Griezmann. Two of those players have played with each other uh, a reasonable amount over the last few years for Spain. Benzema, of course, has only recently returned to the squad. And I feel like you can kind of see that. It doesn't feel quite... Um, the match isn't quite there just yet, is it? Despite the fact that Benzema is an incredible team player and will generally in any game find himself in the place that he's most needed. At the moment, it's almost as if Benzema is being too deferential. It's almost as if he's trying a little bit too hard on the pitch to make sure that 
people know he's a team player and that he's there for the good of the unit and the squad and and for these these fabulous teammates around him. Um, that's really interesting. We, we were talking before we started recording about how, on the one hand, you have this individual character. Uh, there's a really good documentary about Karen Benzema that was on either Netflix or Amazon not so long ago um, about where he comes from, about how he grew up, about the way he's lived his career. And yet on the pitch, uh, it's a vivid contrast because he is actually a very selfless player. Um, as anyone who watched the kind of the Real Madrid era, which you know, had him in the middle of the Bale Ronaldo axis. And the, the chemistry thing with France, it has it, it, it needs work. But what interests me about it, I think, is that I think with chemistry, when you say chemistry, you understand a situation where over time, if players play 50 to 100 games with each other, eventually they develop an understanding, mm. which is probably true. You It's the same as us podcasting. You know when you can cut across, you know when you can start talking, stop talking, that kind of well, stuff. Well, some of us do. Some, <laughs> a few of us yeah, take a little bit longer mm. to, to understand that. Mm. But... When you have really smart players on the pitch, the chemistry is not quite in instantaneous, but it's it's there almost um, from day one. And I I know they didn't win today, and I know there were disappo disappointing parts of uh, France's performance, but I found the understandings between them really fascinating just because mm. these are really, really good footballers at the top of their game, all dovetailing around each other. And at some point, it's going to explode into something which is completely undefendable. Uh, yeah. And it's yeah. it's just, it's nice to see it at, that, at this stage and in a tournament, which is pretty rare. And yeah. And also Mbappe was still amazing today, despite the fact that he, he didn't score, Alex. You felt like uh, he had two or three good opportunities. There's, there's nothing stopping that boy. No, and we were also talking, uh, and this is probably wildly out of character, um, but like him and Pogba are two players that you want to watch all the time. They are they are capable of moments of inventiveness. That that moment when Mbappe brought the ball down from a longish pass, <laughs> as it happens, and then sort of curved his leg around so that he did a kind of back heel scorpion style kick into Benzema's path for Benzema to shank it wide. Like that's just you know people don't do that stuff, and and him and Pogba play with a freedom and an enjoyment uh, and it is more noticeable for the French national side than for either of their club teams that makes them irrepressible you, you know you want to watch that and and you feel as well that that has an effect on the players around them I think it adds to this team chemistry point that you're making that if you're if you're coming into a squad that has big personalities who are elite footballers who are playing really well and enjoying what they're doing then you're kind of going to get drawn into that. And I, I think that has facilitated Benzema's reintroduction to this group. Like he's joining a bunch of guys that are having a lot of fun playing. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I agree with that, yeah. Well, I would also like to uh, take a moment now uh, to enjoy France not getting three <laughs> points out of this game because yesterday, of course, England drew with, uh, with Scotland. Mm -hmm. But now, today now, I'm thinking, well, England haven't conceded a goal yet. France have conceded a goal. Hmm? So therefore, England are better than France. And that's how it works. That's how it, there, works. Isn't it? That is how it works. That's not how it works. But the point we did want to raise here uh, is that a tournament football makes fools of everyone, doesn't it? It does. And it feels like no matter how many tournaments we experience, we never really learn this lesson. And yeah. I absolutely include myself in this because I've, sure. there are some terrible takes I've had during World Cups and European Championships. And I think this is because... It's a really unusual situation, um, even under normal circumstances with no COVID, in that you have all these players playing together in units that are assembled on the hoof, um, and they're playing games uh, in very quick succession, and there are all kinds of factors like um, conditioning and recovery involved, which make responding to an individual result. So, for instance, you know, uh, anointing France champions on the basis of the first game it's really easy to look silly three days later because all mm -hmm. of a sudden, um, how, for instance, how much time have a, a team had to analyze the performance of their op their, of their opponents? You know, because that would have been a couple of, couple of hours afterwards. You don't have a week between games and you don't, like, it's not the perfect science that you sometimes see in club football because you just don't have the time. And also it's a, it's a very, it's a very rare, rare um, environment. A tournament is, is as intense a media focus as there is. So everything about you is being picked apart and analysed. And in many ways, I've always thought that that coverage kind of does 
the opposition scouts job for them. So you're a little bit more exposed than you would be if you were, for instance, um, you know, just trotting along a normal Premier League fixture list and you got Burnley away and, you know, Leeds at home and, you know, the team that's facing you is kind of, yeah, I'll watch 20 minutes of that and a little bit of this. Don't have, it's a very, it's a very bright light. It's like a, you know, kind of um, a surgery style light, which just shows everything, imperfections, the whole lot. And it's, um, it's very, very difficult to, very, very difficult for a team to survive that and also to be <clears> consistent. <throat> and what you see, and a very few tournaments, tournaments during which this hasn't been true, <coughs> is you see bad results. You don't see yeah. champions battering everyone 5-0, 5-0, 5-0 and winning and walking off with the trophy. You see a bad draw here, a loss there, or um, you know uh, uh, an unconvincing performance here. You know, it's, well, indeed, we were saying earlier, there's only one team ever. There is, one, there is. The heroes. Who is it, Joe? Well, I haven't even finished saying what it is yet. <laughs> You've had too much caffeine. I have, I have. There's only one team ever uh, to have won a, a Euros without losing a game, winning yeah. every game, sorry, I should say, <laughs> rather than without losing. Winning every game, and that was uh, Spain in 2008. It is. And They're obviously one of the best of all time. I I find it really interesting because obviously, with, with um, specific to England, the build-up to the Scotland game was, as you'd expect, full of Euro 96 references and isn't it great and the sun's out and batter the Dutch and fantastic. But people that remember Euro 96, remember England starting dreadfully. They were awful against Switzerland. Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't play very well for much of that game against Scotland. They had a good game against the Netherlands. They were brilliant for parts of that. They were dreadful against Spain. They were very, very fortunate to get to penalties in that. Sure. And so nobody learns a lesson, even when these moments are very vivid in our in our past. Um, and no matter how nostalgic we are about them, new tournament and you overreact to everything. And I, I do it as much as anybody else. I'm not um, accusing anybody of anything. Sure. It's just, it's the way of things. I think when we get to the scores later on today, we'll find out that I do it a little bit less than you. I think that's indicative of the way you play the game that you created rather than... Anything else? You know, well, is what you're saying. We shall see. Play it well. We shall see. Uh, okay, we will be back after this. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. And we're back. What a lovely break. That was a nice break, wasn't it? Uh, now let's discuss, Alex, uh, Germany 4 to Portugal. And of course, Gersens is the story. Um, Raphael Honigstein wrote a lovely piece on him before the tournament began, uh, pointing him out as a player that is perhaps the biggest benefactor of the 3-4-3 and also someone who could be a surprise star at the tournament. And here we are. Um, he was fabulous during this game. And even better, when Portugal started to make uh, substitutions, all kinds of space. He did smart things with it. Um, what do you like about him as a player, Alex? Yeah, Rafa really got that one very correct, didn't yeah. he? Um, I mean, I think... On the money. I think the 3-4-3 the three, three system obviously requires uh, a wing-back that is comfortable with with a, a high-pressing game, with plenty of dynamism, with the ability to uh, play long and short passes, switch the play, burst into the box. And Gerson's... People in the chat are telling me it's Gosens. I guess there's no umlaut above the uh, okay. O, is there? Gosens. Gosens? Yeah. Let's go um, with Gosens. Gosens uh, has a good training in that, playing for Atalanta. A very aggressive, man-orientated pressing system, which again suits the kind of play that, that Germany are doing. Him and Kimmich, I thought, tonight got right what they got wrong against uh, France, which was the pace with which the ball was moved from one side to the other. Um, and Gersens is Gosens. 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 We're going to get into one of these pronunciation spirals. Again. It's okay. We've got it right now. Um, Gosens is very, very dynamic and very direct as a runner. So he's six foot. He's athletic. He can make those bursts into the box. He will very frequently be up there challenging for headers. When he's playing for Atalanta, he is pressing the defenders in the penalty area to try and win the ball back, as in in the opposition's penalty area to try and win the ball back. And one of the things that Germany do really nicely and, and have done since they moved back to this 3-4-3 system is the rotations in that space, particularly between two of the wide four or two of the forward players, one of the wide ones, one of the central ones, they mix around a lot. And Gosens himself. Um 
and they will construct the same sorts of moves with players bursting towards the byline and pulling it back for somebody running on. But the players that do those different bits change each time. Mm -hmm. And it makes it incredibly hard to mark. And it only works because Gosens is such a, a good dynamic player who is used to playing in a system that requires the wingbacks to be like that, which is at Atalanta. Yeah, okay. Uh, I really liked and enjoyed this game, Seb. It felt like uh, Germany, I suppose a little unusually, um, a great going forwards and rubbish at the back. I mean, yeah. I, this is why, I know we'll joke about this later, but and I was never really expecting it to be 3-3 as I predicted, but I felt there would be goals in this game because of what we saw from Germany in, yeah. uh, in their game against France. They, of course, didn't, didn't score there, but you could see the patterns... Uh, and it was a, it was a extremely end to end at times. Portugal's first goal, lovely uh, mm, counter attacking, great move. Great move. Th I think three passes until it went into the net, or two passes even before it went into the net. Uh, but I feel like Germany, uh, if they can stay in the tournament for longer, are going to provide some really exciting games to watch. Yeah, it's almost as if they've kind of activated a nothing to lose scenario. It, it feels yeah. as if there's. They're imperfect, they're flawed, like you say. They, they, They've realised that life doesn't matter. Ah, it's also, they're at the end of the cycle. What is the worst that can happen? There's going to be no inquest because the coach is going anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also, it seems as if they've figured out that no matter what the system they use is, and no matter who they play at wing back or uh, at centre half, they're going to be vulnerable. So they will, might as well be aggressive with the ball. And I thought Germany's ball movement was really good. Like it was really fun to watch. And it's been sharp all tournaments so far. Both games. It has. And actually, I, I we criticised them a little bit on their off their opening game because they had a lot of the ball without really creating anything. Mm -hmm. They didn't. Um, they didn't really have the focal point they needed to capitalise on that. I guess two of their goals were scored for them in this game. There were, but then I, I, I feel I still felt that was descriptive of an improvement because they were getting the balls in the right area. They were doing it quickly. The amount of times that um, Kimmich had uh, had time sort of on the corner of the box in that mm -hmm. right-hand position, um, the amount of times Germany in general had it there and were able to, to move the ball across the pitch quicker than Portugal were able to shift and cover. Um, and it felt like it, probably a question for Alex actually, because it felt descriptive of a systemic failing somewhere in the Portuguese side. And I wasn't sure whether, I wasn't hugely impressed with Nelson Semedo. Uh, I also thought that the midfield pairing was again wrong and that there was almost no pressure on Tony Kroos. They're missing Joao Cancelo, aren't they? It feels like it, they are, but it feels like they're missing something else. Like I, again, we sound like a broken record. I just thought Renato Sanchez oh, gives you a little bit more pressure in that, in the central area. It just seemed... Oddly enough, though, um, it seemed that when that substitution was made and Renato Sanchez came on, that was one of the... Uh, it got worse. It got worse. It, it was one worse. of the factors that yeah. allowed Gosens uh, quite a lot more space. And that, uh, You can't bring on a good defensive player. And, and when I say defensive, I mean bringing energy to the press, but then not change the system around him mm. that facilitates that press. So you go from having two pretty slow, bulky workman-like DMs to screen and shift from side to side bring on a more energetic player but then you don't get everyone else to mm. follow him and he just gets exposed and that leaves holes everywhere else that's why pressing is not the same as chasing after the ball and and i think that's that's the issue i mean yeah there, there are systemic problems if you're if you're playing a flat back four versus a wing back system then the fullbacks in defence are always caught in in two minds because if you push if you push up to to stop the wingbacks closer to the halfway line, you're going to need cover coming in the sides. Which if you've got Danilo and William Cavallio is going to be slow to yeah. get there, and that's not ideal. If you sit back, you allow the wingbacks all that space to run into. You also massively. Uh, reduce your own chances of being able to counter-attack counter into the space behind them. So you have to be able to balance what your fullbacks are doing with what your centre-backs are doing in terms of cover or what your defensive midfielders are doing. And that's what Portugal got more wrong, I think. Okay, let me, let me give you an example. Because to me, um, one of the most striking moments was the seconds ahead of the third German goal where the ball got worked into a central position. And you can actually, I mean... you're People are welcome to find the highlights and freeze at this point. You can see Semedo getting sucked in and you can see uh, Gerson's uh, in about 15 yards of space on the far side of the box. It's quite extraordinary. Like you, you, you don't, 
you don't see that very often. And I, I just don't, I don't, first of all, I don't understand where, what Semedo is being sucked towards because there's enough defensive cover there. I also don't understand how a defensive midfielder in that position doesn't recognize the movement around him because you're on the pitch to do that. When you're in your own half, yeah. you know, you, you, you're meant to have the awareness to, to see the runners and to track them. Whose responsibility was that? What, where, or is it a kind of a, is it supposed to be defense by committee there? Well, some, some of it is a coaching issue in the yeah. sense of the back four and the defensive midfielders will have general instructions. Okay. So we talk about pressing triggers, for example. If, if player X has the ball in area Y, that's when we press him. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, you could see in England-Scotland, Raheem Sterling would press Scott McTominay when he had the ball. But if another Scottish player had the ball in the same part of the pitch, they wouldn't get pressed to the same degree. So the, there are things like that. But or also, has it on his left foot, or or the ball's bouncing yeah, or if or there's like a missed that. touch, that yeah, kind yeah, yeah. of stuff. But also, you like you say, you do have to have uh, situational awareness and to have players who are going to shout and say, "You do this, you do yeah. that." And I think one of the issues again when you have wing backs versus fullbacks is if there is space in front of a wing back. A fullback has to make a decision there. And what will sometimes happen, particularly if they're not getting direction on where other players are, is they'll be attracted towards the space because they think, I kind of, I know what's going to happen. It feels wrong that it's there. Do you mean? It feels wrong that the space is there. But at the same time, if you don't fully commit or if you fully commit and get beaten, then you've made it worse. So sometimes actually just sitting in your block and going, well, fine, come to us because you're going to get that runner, you're going to get that runner. That is a safer decision to make. Getting getting caught in no man's land by pushing up a bit but not enough is worse. It was chaos. I thought it was... Uh, I mean, it was chaos. I mean, I, I, way of putting it. I didn't see this coming at all. I thought, I looked at that Portuguese side. In fact, I think I... I did. Well, I remember having a conversation with you before the tournament. I think we were sat around in the Red Lion, the old Red Lion Theatre Pub in Islington. Mm. Um, with Fantastic JJ. pub. Best place to really, watch football really in London, great, you know. Great screen. If you go to the bar, ask for Uncle Damien, he'll be happy to regale you with stories of Essex in the 1970s. Anyway, we were sat there with JJ the day before the tournament started, and I remember us saying, it didn't occur to me just how talented Portugal were until I saw all of those names on the team sheet and the yeah. players they'd have on the bench. And I I was ready to be blown away. I, I think I... I, I I think I convinced myself they're probably going to win the competition. Well, we had here at The Athletic, we had some internal predictions uh, that was offered to all staff members. And I, not only did I say Portugal, Portugal oh. were going to win the tournament, which they may still do. They may, they may. When they won in 2016, they, they were third place in the group, let's this not forget. predictions, tournaments making people look silly again. Making people look silly. Yeah, yeah. The thing that I'm feeling a bit worse about is that I said Bruno Fernandes would be the top scorer. Now... Uh, I want to ask you about Bruno Fernandes because, you know, we sat in the Garden of the Old Red Line, we looked at the squad and we thought, what a fantastic team, what a, what a huge number of fantastic players, uh, two of whom, uh, Joao Felix and Joao Cancelo, have, uh, are yet to play. I'm not sure why uh, Joao Felix isn't playing. Uh, Joao Cancelo is injured, right? We know that. Yeah, we know that. Uh, um, he had, uh, I think he had COVID. Okay, before fine. the tournament. Yes, he started. had he yes. had COVID. He's yes. injured with COVID. So he's uh, um, yeah, recovering. And then we think about the, the, the those players who are playing. Cristiano Ronaldo, of course, has already scored, I think, three goals. So, you know, he's firing on some of his cylinders and he made an extremely quick and long run today for that first goal. So there's some youth still in him. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I thought uh, uh, Jota has been very impressive, which has been nice to see. Not I wasn't well. actually fully expecting him to start the game. So it's quite nice to see that uh, because I thought Joao can... The Bernardo uh, ball in the middle of that move is very nice as well. That yeah. drill diagonal. That was lovely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Bruno Fernandes is the player that I thought would tie this team together and it's very interesting that he has featured almost non-existently in both games. I mean, he was taken off at 64 minutes in this game. And there was, a, you know, he got a lot of sort of slating on social media. I was looking at uh, who scored, uh, tweeted a series of his statistics for the game afterwards. I think his who scored rating was something like five out of 10. Uh, he had, hadn't had a shot, obviously no goal, no assist. Uh, but um, I don't think he'd made a tackle either. And he seemed to just be nowhere in the game you barely notice that he's there i wonder is this is this a kind of function of the of his differing role here uh because at manchester united the entire team is sort of built around him you often see him running back and making 
defensive challenges, but you'll also notice that he's not really a part of the way that Man United play defensively. He's kind of allowed to do what he wants. At Portugal, he's clearly not the most important, or most important, he's not the 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 top of the social he's hierarchy. He's one of many very, very good players. The basically. team is not built yeah. around him in the same way. And I wonder, is it as simple as that? Or is it or is it partly related to the fact that he's playing in a midfield, which, which is sometimes similarly to... McTominay and Fred at Man United isn't servicing him. I think it's a, a bit of a few things, actually. I, I definitely think there's merit in uh, the difficulty of a player adjusting from one system in which everything kind of flows towards him um, to go into a situation where he's playing more in a kind of, you know, a chorus. Uh, I think it would be, I think it's only fair to assume that he is knackered to Mm. He has played a ridiculous amount of football. I was going to say, he must be tired. Well, also, I only say that, and I'm, I'm completely guessing. Um, it's just that you're right in what you say, Joe, in that you don't really associate him with Man United's defensive phases, but he's you're always aware of him on the pitch because he's quite a vibrant yeah. little nuggety presence. And he's he does quite make hero tackles. He's nasty. He's a, yeah. he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a pain. If you, I mean, he's um, he will compete for the ball. He's not, you know, he's not a high presser. I wouldn't say that, but... These things are missing from his game. So the body language is a little bit different. The energy is a bit different. It feels like he's just been drained of his energy. We Last night we, we sat around and we talked about Harry Kane. Brilliant season in England. Yeah. Looks almost injured. And it's kind of a mystery because he looks worse now than he did in his last game in the Premier League this season. Bruno is the same. He just looks like uh, he has run himself into the ground. And it's a shame because I... I really wanted to see this Portugal side. Like I really wanted to see what it could be because mm-hmm. you don't get, um, it's a very particular type of flair. Like you, there's a lot of impressive players at the tournament. There are quite a few teams who have um, you know, really uh, uh, talented networks of players. Portugal have a very specific type of flair in that side. And I would just thought that's going to be entertaining. And Bruno is central to that. And turns out he, you barely noticed him, which is, Sad. We have. We have barely noticed him. So, yes, we go from a group of death, of course, to potentially a group of life for for all the teams involved uh, going into the third game. We weren't sure that that would be the case for Hungary. Of course, a vital point for them if they have any hope of uh, making it through this group. France still top now with uh, four points, uh, followed closely by Germany and Portugal, both on three. Now, next Wednesday, I believe, uh, we will see the final two games in this group. Portugal will play France which is a huge game for Portugal. Huge game. And also Germany will play Hungary, which also feels now that it could be a very... Um, the result or the outcome of that could have a huge impact on the rest of the group. You know what the problem for Portugal is now is that France didn't win today. Because mm-hmm. if France win today, they're through. And instead of facing Benzema, Mbappe, sure. uh, etc., you would have been seeing you know, a slightly unfit Dembele, maybe Giroud player obviously but not Mbappe sure as it is France need to win uh and do you want to face that team and also I think we've spoken throughout the tournament about what you're going to need to get through to the next round and three points might do four points will do uh and Portugal on three is a little bit of me and their only their goal difference is only plus one I think Portugal might go out which would be crazy well, they went through on three points last uh, time. In, in Euro 2016, but you wonder whether that goal difference will be a problem. Because mm. France have, you know, France will be stung by what happened today. And this is a little bit basic. And you know, these are kind of cliched reasons for predicting results. But um, I would expect the reaction to France's draw today to be quite harsh. And also presumably, I mean, it, it, obviously, if Portugal lose the game, then their goal difference will be going down. Exactly. There could be a negative goal difference. Lose by two goals mm. and you've got a problem all of a sudden. Um, I hope they go through because I think um, we've talked about how there's a little bit of a dearth of good teams, potentially, uh, who are going to qualify for the round of 16. I think the tournament needs a good Portugal. I think it would benefit from it. Will it um, get one, though? I don't think so. I don't know. But then I feel like I have... Uh, dug my own grave a little bit because we've talked about how tournaments can make you look really silly really quickly. So, well, I look forward to that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Alex, what are your thoughts on the uh, those those two games? I think the the general consensus from people who uh, follow Portugal and know about football, of which there are quite a lot on Twitter, is that Santos is a 
deeply conservative coach who is unlikely to change his approach particularly out of some misguided sense that what he's doing will come good at some point. He's quite dour. And of course, he's very dour yeah. and, and he does have the last Euros to kind of throw back to as an example of, well, if we just stick to a slightly tedious but methodical game plan, we'll be fine. And, you know, they do have players who in the moment can change things. Um, I think it's really hard. I mean, look, you know, this this group was hard before Germany made their switch to a 3-4-3, which suddenly looks like it's already pretty damn good and also is getting better. Um, so, yeah. What about Hungary? Well, Hungary, I mean, yes, we've we've not really talked about Hungary, have we? Which I hope Hungary win unfair. and Portugal lose and then Hungary go through second and England win their group and then we could play Hungary. That's why you want to talk about Hungary, isn't it? Um, That'd be nice. I mean, let, let's, again, credit to, to teams who play with extreme defensive organisation commitment. They lost their key player, their skipper, yeah. to an injury yeah. and that didn't set them back at all. Klein Heiser, I thought, was exceptional closing down mm-hmm. in midfield today. Um, they went hard. They really did, yeah. They didn't look overawed at all. Uh, and I do wonder, as a kind of throwback to your point, Seb, that that these, I mean, obviously each home nation is is different, but if you are... If you are a nation with uh, a lot of very, very high profile players, you're going to get a fair degree of attention even from the media that's not in your own country. Mm. With the greatest respect to a Hungary or a Finland, that is not the case, right? Nobody's really talking about them. And so it does allow that team to get a good mentality without being constantly exposed to the spotlight. It also possibly means that, that, you know, teams the bigger teams bring in a little bit of arrogance and, and think, mm. uh, I don't have to pay quite so much attention to this. Well, isn't that especially true in this kind of group when you, you plot yeah. your way through it and yeah. with conditioning factors um, very much in play, you're thinking, oh my God, I've got France and Germany and Hungary. Oh yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll ease back into fourth gear. It's not the same as me saying that uh, I think players are being arrogant or... No, no, no. It's just that, that is, that's kind of a... You have finite voluntary resources. Response. Absolutely. Right? It's like a, you a body's natural response to something. You can't concentrate all the time. No, you absolutely. can't be hyped I think we've learned that today. Well, you're trying with all of the caffeine. But yeah, I sure am. Yeah. But, but if, you, if, you're, if you're a player in one of those other three teams or you're the coach, you're very naturally going to look at that group and think, if there's going to be a day where maybe we ease off in the training a little bit, maybe we don't have quite so much video preparation, uh, it's going to be for the Hungary game. And and that's not, well, it kind of is arrogance because we are talking about a nation, a national team that's qualified for the Euros, right? So obviously they're good, but you can also understand it in the context of the group stages, which is fraught and it's condensed and there's a lot going on. And this tournament is against the backdrop of lots of travel and COVID and health concerns and exhausted players, blah, 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 all of the stuff that we know. So if you're Portugal or France or Germany, Hungary is the game where you do take your foot off the pedal slightly. I was, um, and it makes sense, but that's how Hungary then go, we're not going to be those guys. <laughs> we're not. We're not going to slack off because they've got no reason to. Yeah, I. It's interesting because I think um, I think it's one of the the areas which is quite misunderstood. So if you're when we say slacking, oh, you're telling me to go closer to my microphone or no, you're making hand signals. That <laughs> I, I forgot don't that you can't understand hand signals. I was silently telling you to wrap up this bit because Ooh, we yeah. haven't talked about Spain yet, and it's Let almost us talk an about hour. Spain, Mike, though, wasn't good enough to delay us. Fine. Well, okay. that really was exactly I, what I wanted to achieve with my silent well, hand. This is this is universal for wrap it up, wrap I, it up. I, when we say slacking off, I, sometimes it's as subtle as a maybe because players get bored during tournaments, a coach decides to do slightly less boring stuff, in inverted commas. They make sure that they revitalize their squad with, you know, uh, some five-a-side, a shooting practice, something a little bit more you know, vibrant and engaging rather than kind of, you know, rather than teaching, basically. That does not mean hurry up. That's, that's just, that's a... just trying to guess. Sorry, we're just gesturing with wrap it up over and over again to see if he can, see if he can be distracted. Anyway, it seems to have worked. So we'll be back after this. Hey, we're back. 
And uh, we're back now to talk about uh, Spain and Poland. Spain and Poland set two points for Spain only. Uh, need a win, really, in the final game against uh, Slovakia, to be certain of qualification. Uh, Seb, their main problem, uh, Alex, I should say, their main problem appears to be uh, finishing the chances that they create. We sort of spoke about this a little bit earlier on, so perhaps we can speed through the old uh, tiki-taka convo. Uh, not that this is specifically tiki-taka, but a little bit blunt at the top end. Yes, and part of this is going to be Maratta conversation, I think. I mean, can we? I mean, maybe the best way of describing what I mean is that Maratta misses a penalty. No, Moreno misses a penalty, and then Maratta misses the sort of basically open goal follow up. Yeah, and I've written here hideous. <laughs> yes, because it was hideous. And and there were a couple of other instances where where Spain had players through. There was one absolutely brilliant piece of goalkeeping from Chesney. Yes, um, but. Let's be honest, that is an opportunity that really should have been converted. Um, Spain don't have, they don't have a predatory striker. They also don't have a, well, they did have a Pedro type figure in Ferran Torres, who scored a hat-trick against Germany doing very dynamic runs cutting in off the flank. Um, he did not start this game. But he did not start this game. And they, I, I, they went for a more physical presence up front with Moreno. If you look at Poland, Poland are good on the ball, technically competent at working through the lines. What they aren't good at is falling back in defence against quick runners. They have slow centre-backs. You can play the ball over the top. You can go route one, France style. Mm -hmm. um, and for some reason, Spain went, mm, let's take our quickest wide runner off and play someone who's spent most of their season playing as a centre-forward and stick them on the right-hand side. Mm -hmm. and, and this just contributed to a kind of a lethargy because there are a lot of teams about whom we've been able to say this this tournament, but you want runners in behind. Now, whether those runners are in behind uh, a high line and the ball is over the top, or whether they're behind quite a low line and it's lots of quick combinations that release them... You need that movement. Do you know, I, I feel like I can say, I feel like there's never enough runners in behind, just generally in football. Yeah. I always want more runners in behind, and, you do and there's wonder, never enough. You do, well, I wonder whether this is slightly a VAR reaction, that actually mm. because offsides have become that much more forensic, whether runners in behind are a little riskier. Uh, and so you get, you maybe get a balance between a player who wants the ball to feet and one runner in behind. But it seems odd because teams that want to compress the space will leave space in behind them and yeah. teams that want to fall back will often be quite slow to turn in those defensive positions. Like it's a good thing to try and do all the time. Yes. Yeah. And Spain... I don't know. They just didn't go for it. You know, the more we say runners in behind, the more I think that's a great band name. Runners in behind. Mm. Yeah, that is quite nice. What kind of music are runners in behind playing? Scar. For sure, Scar. And what kind of venue? In a Scar venue. And, you know, what's the sort of the composition of that band? And what kind of individuals are in it? You've got like, <laughs> uh, you know, moody bass player. Are you You've doing an impression like... of JJ? <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to. I'm trying, trying to fill to that yes void. And. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I really appreciate oh, I it. I keep doing this thing with my voice and I just but, can't. Um, you fall into the cycle and you can't stop. Stop doing that okay. now. Okay. Yeah. Because we mentioned that penalty before, yeah. right? The, the the hideous penalty. Didn't like it. Can I just stop this and derail it for a moment and mm -hmm. say, Seb, if that's a penalty, then Raheem Sterling's penalty is a penalty. I, I agree. I agree. I, it's the same... I don't think either are penalties, but I think both are the same decision. They both weren't the same action. I think they're both penalties. The only, the only real difference, the only real difference is the angle. So we had a little bit of controversy in the office when this happened about, we had a little discussion about whether it was the same grade of offence. For me, it's just as simple as one player has stepped on another's foot and that's an offence. And one's it higher up the foot than the other, but they're both on yeah, the but foot. It's, 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 it's causing an impediment. Yeah. It's a, it's well, a, can I just point out that all I wanted recognised was mm. that one was slightly higher up and more over the foot than the other. That's a very I, semantic that's, request. Yeah, and that's all I wanted. Do you agree but, that Raheem but, Sterling's one should have been a penalty? <laughs> but yeah. let, let, let me put it this way, because the problem with this is not necessarily where on the foot it's happening or, you know, uh, 
how soon off the ball left did the, the foot come down. It's that when VAR is called for in that situation, it becomes very granular. And we're looking at things very slowly and in unrealistic ways. And we're creating margins of difference which don't actually really exist. We can see, yes, contact is in a slightly different area. In terms of the impact on the player that was fouled or not fouled, it's the same. Um, and I just, I would rather that those kind of decisions weren't given at all then you kind of, you have this sort of inspection for one. And I just, it, it, I find it maddening that there's this sort of varying degree of uh, VAR interference. I find it almost as annoying as the process itself. I was hoping this would be funnier when I said it. And now I feel like actually it is just me moaning that England didn't get a penalty. You, you got really upset about it. It's, it's the thing that's most annoyed you in the tournament. That we, didn't from, get like, a, that we didn't get the penalty. Yeah, you got really it was animated. a penalty. Were... And, like, and now, you know... I, and you know what? People in the chat, lots of people saying was never a penalty. It was a penalty. And I don't care what you think. <laughs> it was a penalty. He steps on his foot. He's sure he's near the byline. And I'm going to wrap up what I'm saying now because I'm turning into, into a bitter JJ. old man. Yeah. Uh, but the reason we brought up penalties was uh, because I think there have been more own goals, Alex, than penalties uh, scored in this tournament so far. And I also think that you read an interesting tweet uh, by someone about penalties, uh, which was interesting enough for you to talk about here. Yeah, so Ben Littleton. The penalties guy. He's the penalties guy. He wrote a yeah. book called 12 Yards. It's really good. Uh, and he pointed out that uh, so only four of 10 penalties have been scored at Euro 2020 so far. Um, and generally speaking, the greater degree of success by some distance has been achieved by players who are what he describes as goalkeeper independent. So what does they, that mean? Well, I was just going to say, but he's just helping you with dialogue. Alex, go say, say it, go. What does it mean? Start saying it. Say it now. So goalkeeper. Ind- <laughs> say no, it. No, he's doing that. <laughs> the, um, so goalkeeper independent is when the, the striker just picks where they're going to hit it. Okay. Irrespective of what the goalkeeper does. Goalkeeper dependent is when the striker, and this is usually accompanied by that kind of stutter, stutter movement. Right, okay. They're looking to see which side the goalkeeper is committed to before making a decision. So could, and, just to check that I've understood, so like Jorginho's penalty technique, Bruno Fernandes, that's goalkeeper dependent because they're waiting for the movement. Yeah. Alan Shearer run up to the ball, extremely bang it into the top corner. Yes, right, just agree, absolutely agree. hammer it. Okay. Um, and I think if you're, I mean, gosh, I never took penalties. I think I took one penalty once ever. Um, and I did score. I took a one-step penalty once. Oh, show like I, I'd seen it on, I think it might have been Football Italia. Did it work? Yeah, went in, went okay. in. Um, it, was it was the greatest moment of your life. Um, yeah. But I think if you're, particularly in a really high-pressure situation like this, it's another thing to think about. Yeah, It's another thing to concentrate on when, and, and we see, it doesn't happen often, but we will see professional footballers, particularly in scoring opportunities or scoring positions where the ball is coming to them and they are so focused on where they're going to put the ball that they don't even kick it. And I think it's sometimes very easy as a spectator to forget just how hard the sequence of cognitive and physical actions are that require you, like that are required yeah, yeah, in order yeah. to make contact in certain situations. So if you're a penalty taker and and at least 50% of your effort is focused on those micro movements and twitches and so on that a goalkeeper's giving off and then a commitment to dive one way or the other and then you have to maybe adjust your body position, just cheer it, right? Yeah. Exactly. And Ben Littleton would support this on the basis of data. He's done another book. I forget the title of it, but it's very, very interesting. It's all about, uh, it's to do with leadership and identity. Um, I shall tweet it out once I Oh, it's home. called Edge, isn't it? Edge. Yeah, exactly. It's really, really, really interesting. It's, it's about things like um, how uh, Athletic Bilbao are able to produce a, you know, a competitive team with the, re- the self-imposed restrictions on yeah. their recruitment. Really interesting. On that note, can I also shout out Dan Fieldsend's book, The European Game, which sure has thing. similarly interesting things in it. Go find it. 
I'd like to shout out the book Hyperion by Dan Simmons <gasps> is a great book. Oh, Nothing to do with football. Does this not take you back to the 2018 World Cup when you recommended me this book? Did I? Was it was in 2018. Mm-hmm. Great book. And you set me off on a path of science fiction from which I have never recovered. Yeah, but I'm perfectly happy about that. He's been caught in the technological stasis Adrian, of the spaceship of sci-fi. Adrian Tchaikovsky, Children of Time. Yes, please. Yeah. Right, okay. Uh, do we want to talk about Barcelona signing Memphis Depay or do we want to go home? I'll do a minute. I find it weird. Right, I find go. it so strange. The last sort of last six months has been all about Barcelona's uh, financial problems and they have... It's been a long time coming though. I mean, this has been has on the been, cards for... But even so, they've, they've... It's not a surprise. It's not a surprise. They've added to their wage bill. He has signed a contract which is only going to run to 2023. He's also arriving the same summer as Sergio Aguero. It's going to be a lot of competition for places in that Barcelona team. Like it's a, it's a use of money which I don't quite understand. I mean, I, um, the assumption you might draw is that they're not going to renew Leo Messi's contract, but apparently uh, they have, or that they hope to do that too. So you're going to have Messi, Griezmann, Dembele, Ansu Fati once he returns to fitness, um, Memphis Depay, Sergio Aguero. Feels overloaded to me. Feels mm. a bit strange. I, I think Memphis Depay is a super player and I hope he does well. I'm sure he'll do great there. But um, it doesn't feel, doesn't seem to fit this sort of um, the promises Juan Laporta made about, uh, Jean Laporta, sorry, Juan Laporta, um, about, uh, you know, a financial rebirth, a sort of a remodeling. Doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense. Maybe I'll be proved wrong. I don't know. Mm. But it doesn't seem... Uh, curious. Very curious. We shall enjoy seeing what happens next season. Sure will. Anyway, it's time to discuss the predictions. Ugh. The points here. This is. I've been waiting for this point, this moment, all night, because I made some predictions yesterday, and you laughed at me for them, Seb. You laughed at me when I said 3-3 Germany-Portugal, and it turns out that I was only gained two points for that one, and you gained three. So I'm the winner, you and are. I'm better than you, and you laughed at me, and I proved you wrong. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, that was fun. Uh, anyway, uh, Alex, you're yeah. in first place still. Yeah. Your gap has grown <laughs> to uh, five points. You're on 40 points now. Yeah. You did okay today. JJ, uh, <laughs> JJ yet again <laughs> forgot to submit his predictions and amazingly did better with two three-point penalties uh, for uh, only making his prediction for the final game uh, than he would have done if he gave us, because he gave us his honest predictions for what he would have thought the games would have been. And uh, they they gained him more points than the penalty did. So we've stuck with the penalty. He gained uh, I don't know, eight points or something today. And he's up there on 45. Seb, I'm gaining on you, boy. You are. I am basically on your back now. You're on 48. I'm on 49. Let let it not be forgotten. Forgotten. Three days ago, there was an eight-point gap between us. It's just one now, yeah? And I will not lose this thing. Forgotten sounds like something. Do not forgotten. But it sounds like something that would get said in the monologue. An actor appears on stage by himself and just launches <laughs> yeah. into his performance. And you said with enough confidence with, that it sounds like a real word. Forgetting something. That's <laughs> what that sounded like. Forgetting the sands of time. Give me your predictions for tomorrow, please. Yeah, let me just get them up because we we all did them earlier, Mo- mostly for JJ's sake, so that he wouldn't forget to do I, them. I haven't again. done mine yet. I didn't put mine in the chat. Did you know? So I'm going to do mine now. Well, okay, you do yours first okay, then, because so, the two games tomorrow are Italy, Wales, and Switzerland, Turkey. Probably Switzerland, Turkey being the more important of those two, I would say. Yeah, I think Italy to Wales one, uh, weakened Italy, squeeze past Wales. That's exactly what I said. You're just copying I my predictions. I've made a. Uh, I guess a, a competition long commitment to Turkey so I think they will beat Switzerland 1-0 I was thinking Granit Xhaka will get a red card don't know why I say that just got a hunch that's not I don't no like no no it. I've added it in like I've added it in no like, you know. okay Alex you made your predictions earlier in the chat um, and firstly you said Italy 2 Wales 1 also copying me uh, but um, well I went first uh with your second one, you said Switzerland nil, Turkey nil. Now, we've discussed this outside before yeah. the podcast started because I, I said to Alex, uh, I said to him, that's nuts. There's there's nothing to lose in that game. Both teams need a win. There's yeah. no way on earth that game finishes nil-nil, particularly with how poor uh, Turkey have been in defence and how great uh, Braylon Bolo was in the first game. 
And so I gave Alex the opportunity, based on my good footballing advice, to change his prediction if he so choose, and therefore put him in a vice-like grip of either being wrong or being right with my help. Now, what would you like to do, Alex? Stick. He's going to stick with nil-nil. I knew he would. I knew he would. Uh, and my predictions were Italy 2, uh, 1 Wales, and Switzerland 2, 1 Turkey. There we go. Okay. And did I say what JJ said? JJ said, oh, Italy 2-0 and uh, Switzerland 2-1. There we go. So, it's the end of another day. Hope everybody enjoyed uh, today's episode. It was a fun footballing day. Justice! And uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll be back tomorrow <laughs> to talk about all the games. Well, actually, probably just one of them because they start being played at the same time and, you know, it's difficult to watch two at once. We'll try our best. Uh, anyway, Seb Sefferblor, thank you. Thank you, Joe Devine. Alex Stewart, thank you. Why did you say justice? I don't, I don't know. I just feel... I same felt reason miserable he yesterday. the other day. Like well, yeah, I just get words stuck. Well, I felt miserable by England dropping points and then I saw France drop points. I thought everything, everything's fine now. Justice, uh, you know. Uh, sure. Anyway. And uh, thanks, as usual, to our wonderful production team, of Don and Sol. Little wave there from Don. There's there's Don's hand. And what a wonderful uh, hand it is. Okay, we'll be back tomorrow uh, thanking you. And uh, never forgetting, come back. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>